Let us begin in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, welcome to another edition of Seeds of Truth. This is your host, Joe Holcraft, coming to you from KKXX Studios. Shegal Life Radio 104.5 FM at AM 930. It is great to have you with me another Thursday evening where we have the opportunity to continue our reflection into theology of the body, specifically uh, the widely popular Christopher West and his work, The Love That Satisfies, which is a reflection into the first half of Benedict XVI's encyclical Deus Caritas S, where he focuses in on uh, eros and agape. Again, eros, human love, and agape, divine love, sacrificial love. And so he engages the first half of that encyclical, God is Love, with this book, The Love That Satisfies, that we have been working through of the course of the last six, seven weeks. Now, if you tuned in last Thursday, I apologize for the uh, Thanksgiving commercial break. <laughs> I went ahead and and uh, recorded a program on the importance of Thanksgiving and, and the Catholic vision of Thanksgiving. And certainly, if you joined me last week, you know I spent a great deal talking about gratitude and this underestimated virtue of gratitude. And And so if you tuned in last week, it's great to have you back this week. If you are tuning in for the first time, I welcome you. Uh, Wherever you may be listening to this radio program, whether it be in your car, in your home, if you are tuning in by way of podcast, I welcome you. Uh, I've noticed, again, the audience in in Brazil, uh, the Philippines, uh, Australia, the UK, Portugal, Spain, Italy, all uh, tuning in, uh, hitting that uh, podcast. And again, it is always an honor to have you uh, join me to take a half hour of your day to reflect with me on the importance of of the things that I and those guests that join me talk about here on this radio program. So again, tonight, this evening, it is Theology of the Body. I am flying solo. Ivan Moore and Chris Seibert will, will join me next week. So tonight, the goal is to get through chapter three. But before we go there, I thought it would be good to offer up a summary and just a few key points from the first few chapters, okay? The first chapter was about encountering God who is love and what that means in light of theology of the body. Uh, So what does that mean when we say God is love? Well, when we talk about God, we talk about the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And it's always good to start with the Trinity on whatever you're teaching and whatever you're talking about, because that is uh, the, the source, that is the origin for a deeper understanding of, of God who is love, right? Because the Father eternally loves the Son, and the Son eternally loves the Father, and this perfect eternal exchange of love is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the love shared between the Father, and the Son. And what's the good news, my friends? Well, we get to share in this love. The Catechism of the Catholic Church highlights this very early on, uh, on a number of occasions, that we uh, get to share in this perfect, eternal exchange of love. Uh, What a calling. Um, What a gift. 
that we have been given in baptism to be incorporated into this divine life, this divine energy that is life-giving, this energy that is the love shared between the Father and the Son. Uh, But there's more, as Christopher West notes, huh? Because God created us in His image, and He created us male and female. He wanted this eternal marital plan to be so plain and obvious to us that he actually impressed an image of it in our very being by creating us male and female and calling us to become one flesh. As St. Paul says, this union in one flesh is a great mystery that points to Christ's union with the church. Our bodies are then what? Not only biological, but they are also theological. We can properly say, as Christopher West says, our bodies are a study of God. That is the provocative thesis of theology of the body. As male and female, our bodies reveal the mystery of life-giving love and union that has been hidden in God from all eternity. In other words, as, again, Benedict points out and really uh, is the thesis of his work, um, eros, that human erotic love, is meant to express agape, divine sacrificial love. One of my favorite lines from John Paul II is that the sexual urge is the raw material for the more authentic love to develop, right? Because in that urge, we are pointed towards other. And the fullness of serving other is not in just the eros, that human erotic love, but in the agape, the divine sacrificial love. Uh, now, of course, none of this means that that God is sexual. Remember what we talked about last month. Right? We are made in God's image, not he in ours. God's mystery remains infinitely beyond the image of everything we have talked about. Yet, at the same time, as John Paul II once observed, There is no other human reality which corresponds more, humanly speaking, to that divine mystery than uh, the body. Okay, so uh, very important there. Now, uh, chapter two was about distinguishing true love from its counterfeits, huh? And here we reflected upon the importance of, of what the catechism had to say to us, that the disorder we notice so painfully in the male-female relationship does not stem from the nature of man and woman, nor from the nature of the relations, but from their sin. As a break with God, this first sin had for its consequence the rupture of the original communion between man and woman. That's the bad news. But Jesus Christ came to share the good news, and he gives us the grace to be able to distinguish right, <laughs> between that pseudo-love and real love. And that grace comes to us from Jesus Christ because he came to restore creation to the purity of its origins. Therefore, as the Catechism reminds us, by following Christ— renouncing themselves and taking up their crosses, spouses will be able to receive the original meaning of marriage and live it out with the help of Christ. 
So Christ gives us the grace to live in his super abundance of love. And in that love, we are able to detect what is authentic versus what is unauthentic. Now, here we are in uh, chapter three, the unity of the body and soul. And if you have your books out there, if you happen to purchase the work, The Love That Satisfies, you can turn to page 50. I am going to start with the excerpt here, excerpt number 20 from Benedict's work, God is Love, and it reads as follows. The contemporary way of exalting the body is deceptive. Eros, reduced to pure, quote-unquote, sex, has become a commodity, a mere thing to be bought and sold, or rather, man himself becomes a commodity. This is hardly man's great yes to the body. On the contrary, he now considers his body and his sexuality as the purely material part of himself to be used and exploited at will. What were those words of John Paul II? Man is to be loved, things are to be used, and yet we love things and use people. I always go back to that soundbite because that really hits at the core of what theology is all about and certainly speaks to what Benedict XVI is saying here. So what more can we say and, and what does Christopher West have to say here? Well, off the top, it is clear that in our day, we are witnessing a vast but false cult of the body. And by using the phrase cult of the body, what we are made to see is, is what lies underneath that phrase. You know, the word cult comes from Latin, cultus, meaning to worship, right? We have come to worship the body. We've come to see the body outside of its creator. And of course, this is the great danger because anytime you see something without its creator, it will never be seen for what it is. We live in a pornographic world, a world that claims to exalt the body and sex. However, it does so in such a way that in the end, men and women are not lifted up, but degraded, huh? often horribly so. This is why we live in a culture that doesn't have a problem with pornography, but for all intents and purposes has become a pornoculture. If you were to go back, I, I went back into my archive in my podcast. If you were to go back to July 31st, we devoted a whole program to pornography. I'm not going to get back into all of that subject matter right now. I'll just encourage you to go back to July 31st. Uh, but in many ways, that whole program is what we are talking about now. How we are witnessing this vast but false cult of the body in the onslaught of uh, this pornoculture that we live in. If you were to go to covenanteyes.com, all of the statistics are there, all of the ratings, all of the numbers. You can scroll to the bottom of that website. Again, go there, covenanteyes.com. You go to the bottom of that uh, website, and it has synced itself up with all of uh, the pornographic websites. And so it is able to track everyone who hits a pornographic website. And in the year 2014, it's in the billions. It's just crazy. It jumps by 200 every second. Now, this is a problem. This is a major, major problem. That being said, when we understand the authentic Christian vision of man and woman and their call to union, we realize that the problem with our pornographic culture is not that it overvalues the body and sex. 
The problem is that it has failed grievously to see how valuable the body and sex really are. This is, again, another key piece to John Paul II when he's offering up his initial reflections on theology of the body, to see the value of body and sex. So today we have seen how Eros has been tragically reduced in the modern world, not exalted. It has been reduced, as Pope Benedict says, to what? Pure sex. That is, to something merely physical, to something cut off from the spiritual truth about man and woman and their eternal destiny of incarnate union with God himself. The wonderful image, my dear listeners, uh, that we have in the Trinity, the wonderful truth that we have in the Trinity, is that when you really get into it, what do we realize? We speak the language of God fluently when we consummate our marriage, when two become one. And we are open to life, right? Because it is the consummation of father and son that bears life to the third. That love shared leads to a life in the inner life of the Trinity. And that life is the Holy Spirit. So when two become one and are open to life, we speak the language of God most fluently. In fact, there's a wonderful uh, biblical vision to this, right? Because in Genesis 1.26... We read, let us make man in our image and likeness. Okay, us, there's a plurality to God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Well, how do we image God? Well, next time you see the word image in uh, Scripture there, in the book of Genesis is Genesis 5.3, when Seth is born in the image of Adam. Adam and Eve are imaging God most profoundly when they give birth to Seth. Likewise, uh, when two become one and give life to the third, we image God fluently. And I just think that's a beautiful, beautiful truth for all married couples. Now, as we engage Benedict's words, what we are made to see is that man becomes a commodity when sex becomes a commodity because sex, the body in its masculinity and femininity, expresses the heart and soul of man, right? The human body expresses the human person. What we do with and to our bodies then, we do with and to our persons, okay? To separate this is again the tragedy, the great folly of man. Matter matters, as Christopher West says. <laughs> John Paul II has a wonderful reflection in his letter to the families. I think it's uh, paragraph 19. He says this, The human family is facing the challenge of a new mannequinism, okay, in which body and spirit are put in radical opposition. The body was seen to be something as evil. Okay, So John Paul II goes on to say, The body does not receive life from the spirit, and the spirit does not give life to the body. Man thus ceases to live as a person and a subject. Regardless of all intentions and declarations to the contrary, he becomes merely an object. This neo-Manichaean culture has led, for example, to human sexuality being regarded more as an area for manipulation and exploitation than as the basis of the primordial wonder 
which led Adam on the morning of creation to exclaim before Eve, This is at last bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. This same wonder is echoed in the words of the Song of Solomon. You have ravished my heart, my sister, my bride. You have ravished my heart with the glance of your eyes. How far removed are some modern ideas from the profound understanding of masculinity and femininity found in divine revelation? Mm, mm, mm. So, (laughs) if we do not reclaim this profound understanding of masculinity and femininity found in divine revelation, as John Paul II says, civilization will eventually, and my dear friends, inevitably collapse. This, again, is why John Paul II's first major teaching project as Pope was to proclaim the splendor of God's plan for the body and sexuality. And this is why Benedict's first encyclical, Deus Caritas Est, echoes the same themes. Both popes seem to be saying not that the secular world overvalues sex, but ultimately Christians don't value it enough. That Catholics don't seize the wonder and beauty of being created in the image and likeness of God. This is a great challenge. I think I made a point on our very first night of our very first series on Theology of the Body, where I said, sequence is very important. What someone leads with is what is close to the heart, okay? John Paul II led his pontificate with Theology of the Body. Everything he said and did would be seen in light of his treatment of Christian anthropology. This is important. Benedict, same point. He leads with this. I love the point here that Christopher West makes when he says that if Christians understood and lived sexuality according to its true God-given value, they never would have allowed the pornographic revolution to occur. Or one could argue that if Christians of the 20th century had witnessed authentically to the true value of human sexuality, the pornographic revolution would have had no reason to occur. Amen to that. Okay. Now, let us go to Benedict's next excerpt here. This is excerpt number 21. This is Benedict. Today, man does not see the body as an arena for the exercise of his freedom, but as a mere object that he attempts as he pleases to make both enjoyable and harmless. Here, we are actually dealing with the debasement of the human body. No longer is it integrated into our overall existential freedom. No longer is it a vital expression of our whole being, but it is more or less relegated to the purely biological sphere. And by the way, I talked about the biology and theology earlier for a reason, so that we might better understand what Benedict is talking about here. Okay, Benedict's quote here. I mean, doesn't the world trumpet sexual and reproductive freedom? How then are we able to understand Pope Benedict's assertion that today man has separated his body from the arena for the exercise of his freedom? Obviously, we are dealing with two vastly different notions 
of freedom. And this topic I have spent a great deal talking about uh, in the past. This is this is the distinction between a freedom to do what we ought to do or the freedom to do what we want to do. Is freedom given to us as a license to do whatever we want to do or is it a gift? A gift that leads us to the heart of God. John Paul II once wisely observed that man understands his liberty according to whether he is free. What is he saying there? One who is not truly free will understand freedom very differently from one who is. Uh, The person who is not free will understand freedom as a, a tossing off of the shackles of the moral law so he can again do whatever he wants to do indulge in his fallen desires without any kind of constraint his philosophy is follow desire as it presents itself without hindering it now the question i pose to you is does this make one free and for that matter does this even make sense i mean should i follow a desire to murder just because it presents itself would this make me free because I tossed off the oppressive law against murder and indulge my compulsion. <laughs> That's an example Christopher West gives. When you start to think about this critically and apply logic, we can begin to appreciate the very slippery slope that is the logic of or the absence of logic that lies within our cultural mindset. Okay. The Christian understanding of liberty, on the other hand, is ultimately the freedom to do what is good, unhindered by the tyranny of sin. In the Christian view, liberation is not the freedom to sin, but the freedom from sin. It is freedom from the compulsion to commit sin. Freedom, then, is not found in indulging our compulsions, but in liberation from our compulsions to indulge. You see, without this kind of freedom, love, my friends, is impossible. All we can do is gratify our lustful instincts and call it love. Huh? Are we lust-making or are we love-making? At its best, lust is only a mere shadow of love. At its worst, it is love's antithesis, the using of another person as a means to my own selfish end even if that end seems normal, natural, or deserved, because we suffer from myopia, (laughs) nearsightedness. And here again, the problem is one of lack of the integration of body and soul. This is what we talked about a a couple weeks ago when Chris and Ivan were with me. The integrated person understands liberty as freedom from sin. The disintegrated person insists that liberty is freedom to sin. Sex, in the disintegrated view, becomes more or less relegated to the purely biological sphere. We come to view sex through a plumber's lens, as Christopher West says. (laughs) I love that phrase, as the coupling of random body parts. And as such, sex becomes inhuman, animalistic, and thus amoral. And Recall Edward Sree's work where we were talking about um, that man has the capacity more than just an animal. We were reflecting into how animals act according to their instincts and appetites. 
Human persons are, however, not enslaved to their passions and desires. Right? With intellect and free will, persons can choose a course of action based on what? Self-reflection. No matter what desires may be stirring within them. For example, and this is an example that, that Edward Sree offers up in that work. You know, he says, a hungry man may desire to eat a ham sandwich that is offered to him, but he can choose not to follow his desire because he generously wants someone else to have the sandwich or because he is committed to the fast on that particular day. Okay, so a person can rise above appetites for the sake of a higher goal. A dog, however, cannot do that. Well, what happens when you put a steak in front of a normal hungry dog? I mean, <laughs> is that dog going to take a pass on that steak to let the other hungry canines in their neighborhood have a chance to eat it? Will the dog say to himself, uh, I better not eat that. Huh? It's Friday or Lent. Of course not. A hungry dog will devour that piece of meat. Right? John Paul II explains that in animals, the sexual instinct is a reflex mode of action. Okay, so something that is not dependent on conscious thought. Think of it this way. <laughs> a female cat in heat does not reflect on what is the best time, place, or circumstance for her to mate. She does not ponder which male cat in the neighborhood would make the ideal partner. Cats simply act reflexively according to their instincts. Human persons, however, are not called to live like animals. They do not have to be enslaved to what is stirring within them in the sexual sphere. In the end, the person is in control of the sexual urge, not the other way around. The person can actually choose how he or she wants to use it. Amen. Okay, I wanted to make sure here we got to this last excerpt and just a, a few brief words that Christopher West had to it. Um, this is Benedict's words. The apparent exaltation of the body can quickly turn into a hatred of bodiliness. <laughs> is it any wonder today, my friends, that so many of us feel uncomfortable in our own skin and displeased with the way we look? You know, Christopher West says this, and I absolutely loved this paragraph, and I'll just go ahead and quote it, and this might wrap our, our time up for, for this evening. He says, We are constantly told by the media, we are too fat or too thin. We are too short or too tall. We are too flabby or too wrinkled. We have too much body hair or not enough. Our eyes, skin, or hair are the wrong color. Our faces are too blotchy. Our complexions are not smooth enough. Various body parts should be bigger or smaller, rounder or flatter, firmer or softer. In short, we are constantly told to scrutinize virtually every aspect of our anatomy. Because of the airbrushed ideals exalted by our culture, we inevitably find our own bodies wanting. But fear not. For every bodily flaw the media brainwashes us into believing we have, that same media will sell us some product or procedure to correct it. From breast implants to hair transplants, from exotic skin creams to stranger-than-fiction exercise machines, from buttocks reduction by lip liposuction to abs of steel for sex appeal. These are the new sacraments and liturgical rituals of a false cult of the body. And so it is, my friends. 
we are made to draw back in a major way and be reminded that God does not see us as the world sees us just for our sexual values, just for what we look like, but for who we are as created in his image and likeness as a human person, the unity of body and soul. Let us close with the word of prayer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. All glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. And God bless you. Thanks for listening to Seeds of Truth, heard every evening, Monday through Friday at 6.30 p.m. If you'd like to hear this program or find out how you can help support Seeds of Truth, the website is joeholcraft.org.